Today is April 14, 2023, and you've tuned in to the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor with RoomNow.com. On today's podcast, we'll talk about playing and winning the match game in rheumatology, my review of cocaine vasculitis, or was that the movie Cocaine Bear? And we're ultimately going to get back to worrying about the safety risks of biologics and targeted synthetics. We're going to begin with the 2023 NRMP match in rheumatology. Um, we had 365 applicants for adult rheumatology. We only had 271 available positions, and we matched almost 98% of them, 265 out of 271. That meant 100 people who were interested in rheumatology went away unhappy and did not get a rheumatology fellowship. But the good news is those who are running our programs in adult rheumatology are filling them up and filling them up with good applicants. And of the um, 127 adult programs, only four did not fill their match. The good news was, again, not reciprocated in pediatric rheumatology, where this continues to be a major league problem. There's 41 available positions. We filled only 62.8% or 27 of those. In the 32 programs, 14 of the 32 programs did not fill their match. This continues to be a struggle uh, and each individual should do all they can to encourage good applicants, smart young minds to go into pediatric rheumatology. You know, actually, I must say that pediatric rheumatology is why I got interested in rheumatology. It's one of the things I did, even though I was an adult internist. Uh, I did a adult rheumatology program where I could actually do pediatric rheumatology. Um, it's an exciting area. Also, this last week, Doximity came up with its recent data on physician salaries uh, and ranked the best paid of the specialties and the least best paid. This is based on 2022 survey data. And at number three in the least best paid specialty is, again, pediatric rheumatology, earning $226,000 a year. Adult rheumatology, not far behind at number 20, making um, $299,000 a year. Again, these are nationwide um, averages. Uh, there are, there's considerable regional variation in salaries. Um, and But the bad news is um, two rheumatology specialties making up the bottom um, uh, of the list. <laughs> within the bottom 20. Uh, I found a nice, interesting review and analysis of a very unusual but um, challenging, rare form of vasculitis. It's clinically isolated aortitis. Saw this on Twitter, thought that I should retweet it out. This is a study from the Olmstead County um, uh, data set where over a 20-year period, they, they diagnosed eight cases of these. Six out of the eight were women. Um, turns out that all of them were diagnosed um, upon having surgery for their uh, aortic aneurysm repair. Um, they were old. The mean age was, I think, 78 years old. Uh, the incidence here is 
nine cases per one million adults over the age of 50. Uh, interestingly, um, having clinically isolated aortitis did not change mortality statistics when compared to uh, age-matched individuals. So, yeah, you'd want to make this diagnosis as early as possible. It's often a hard diagnosis to make. Um, often does require imaging, um, if not biopsy. Um, but there's a good amount of literature out there to guide you. Another recent report of something, um, you know, Cocaine Bear, that's in the movies right now. I don't know if I want to see that. It seems like a really bizarre title and a really bizarre movie. Um, it's supposed to be quite a comedy, but I haven't seen it. Um, we could talk about movies maybe next week. Um, instead, let's talk about cocaine-induced systemic or midline or nasal vasculitis. Retrospective study of 42 patients. Um, the take-home on this was even though the patient denies um, uh, having ever taken cocaine or recently taken cocaine, uh, you should always be testing them for cocaine because um, when it was tested, it was found um, as a positive result in 20 out of 23 tested by urine toxicology. Uh, and again, most of those people had previously denied any exposure to cocaine. The, these folks mainly presented as septal perforations in three quarters of the, uh, of the time. Um, oral nasal fistulas, less common, 15%, 27% with other systemic features. About half of them are were PR3 negative, I'm sorry, PR3 uh, ANCA positive. So again, these uh, cocaine-induced um, vasculitis cases often present with local midline nasal symptoms, but they can also have systemic vasculitis uh, and should always bring cocaine into the differential diagnosis. Um, another recent report in the journal called Thoracic Cancer was a Japanese cohort study of the association between cancer and dermatomyositis. So in this study, they identified that lung cancer was, um, did have clinical associations, mainly with males, mainly with elder onset dermatomyositis. Um, again, males, older age, Dermatomyositis, previously known risk factors. They also threw in there other known risk factors, smoking, being TIF1 gamma antibody positive, and they throw in a new red herring, and that is an elevated monocyte to lymphocyte ratio. Again, we've written about that before. Those kind of tests are often um, useful and do indicate usually chronic, if not acute, inflammation. Um, it's cheap. It could be done, but most of us don't do the math. Um, but we do have these things called phones that are capable of all kinds of things. Uh, Rheumatology International published a really interesting report from Marina Magri uh, from uh, Cleveland about a retrospective um, a study of PSA patients and the association with comorbidities and who is likely to have that. What was interesting about this study was that they, comorbidities were sort of racially distributed such that African-Americans were more likely to have hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and gout. Um, but Caucasians were more likely to have cancer, anxiety, oste and osteoporosis, and were also more likely to receive biologic therapies than the other um, groups that they analyzed against. 
the FDA, um, you know, collects data in its adverse event reporting system, part of the MedWatch system. Um, a review in Frontiers looked at the association of IL-17 inhibitor use and colitis. They um, pulled 388 cases who were labeled as suspected IL-17 inhibitor-associated inflammatory bowel disease. The unifying features were that the median age here was 42 years. The initial symptoms was predominantly diarrhea and over 90%, uh, almost 60% with abdominal pain and half, 51% with bloody diarrhea. A third of these patients had fever. 87% had high white counts. What you needed to know is that the time of onset of the colitis symptoms was 2.9 months was the median from starting the IL-17 inhibitor to developing colitis symptoms, almost three months. From stopping the IL-17 inhibitor to resolution of symptoms, meaning remission, the average was four weeks. So I think this sort of is helpful when uh, considering these cases. I, I've seen two, and they kind of presented like this, but the interesting thing about the two cases I saw is that the bloody diarrhea and colitis never went away with IL-17 inhibitor um, suspension, meaning that it could very well be that giving the IL-17 inhibitor to someone who was prone to get um, colitis, IBD, one was also colitis, the other one was Crohn's, that maybe it brings it out and then it just stays as a clinically manifest disease. Those two patients stayed on IBD drugs long-term and were obviously no longer taking IL-17. But that's my little story tacked on to their bigger story, an FDA adverse event reporting system review. Let's talk about probiotics and gout. What? No, this is not a special kind of crazy. This is uh, a study based on some science that the um, probiotic strain Ligilactobacillus salivarius, or L. salivarius, was studied in gout because it's known to um, um, assist in the metabolism of purines. So they studied it in an animal model, and then they also gave it to 30 adults who were hyperuricemic with a history of recurrent gout. The 30 uh, adults is an open-label study, a small study, but nonetheless, they were either given the probiotic L. salivarius or allopurinol and then followed for six months. They compared gout flare rates from before the intervention to after the intervention and then between the interventions. Well, Clearly, in this study, the probiotic was the winner. Probiotic patients had less gout attacks, 5 out of 15 patients, then did the controls on allopurinol, 13 out of 15 attacks. Also, the probiotic group had less attacks than they did before they got the probiotic, whereas the gout controls on allopurinol kind of actually stayed the same or increased. So I think this makes a lot of sense. We've talked about... Um, other research that's been done showing that, well, we do know that uric acid is excreted in the kidney. That's what everybody focuses on. But that only accounts for about two-thirds of uric acid excretion. About 30% or a little more than that actually is excreted in the gut. So to facilitate gut excretion of uric acid, that seems to be a new um, form of intervention that people are starting to look at. I think you'll be seeing more research on this in the future.
Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology did a nice big study from Australia um, looking at fracture risk with uh, vitamin D. We do know that people who are deficient in vitamin D have a significant risk of fractures. In this study of 20,000 Australians who were given either placebo or vitamin D, um, they, and the vitamin D was 60,000 units a, a month. Uh, this was half women. Uh, the average age was almost 70 years. Uh, and they followed them for a median of 5.1 years. How, and what they found was that using vitamin D had no effect on fracture risk. And that included, you know, non-vertebral major osteoporotic fractures and hip fractures. Um, fractures were seen in 5.6% of those on vitamin D and 5.9% of those on placebo, and that was not significant. You know, this month is Women in Rheumatology Month. We're featuring a lot of new information about women in rheumatology. Here's a report from the Spanish Society of Rheumatology that did a survey of its um, manpower or um, workforce showing that there's no manpower in their workforce, that a significant number of retiring older male rooms has left significant workforce shortages throughout Spain. Currently, almost 60% of the rheumatologists in Spain are women and that the majority of those are under the age of 54. There's not only a shortage, there's also a maldistribution as there sounds a lot like the United States, does it not? We have a therapeutic update this month where it features a number of different videos that are focused on gender differences in disease states and therapeutic outcomes. There are videos up there right now on sex differences in spa and PSA, gender differences in vasculitis and gender differences in counseling patients on reproductive health. Look for these videos and more. A report uh, from the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, from officials at the World Health Organization shows that women are 80% of the healthcare workforce throughout Europe. 97% of nurses and midwives in, in Europe are women, yet women earn 24% less than men and hold only 25% of senior roles in the healthcare industry. Their plea in their position paper was for equal pay, equal promotion, better work conditions, and an attempt at gender-specific solutions. Um, I considered this, and I even wrote about it. Um, actually, I did a video on it. It's called Room Thoughts. Find it on the website. The title of this is Why I Hire Women. I think you'll find that interesting. Also, um, this week we did a Tuesday Night Rheumatology on contracts and uh, contract negotiations. This discussion included a lawyer and two rheumatologists, uh, Gwen Melton and Catherine Dow. It's a really good session if you have an interest in contracts and contract negotiations. This is especially pertinent for fellows and recent um, uh, fellowship graduates who will be faced with contract issues. You can find this as a video, uh, which you, again, you should see the video, but there's also a written form of this. Dr. Dow wrote up this up as a blog as well. This week, there were two important reports on pain and opioids. One comes from the CDC and the MMWR from uh, uh, today, April 14th. 
says that as of 2021, chronic pain, meaning chronic musculoskeletal pain um, lasting more than three months, uh, affects 51.6 million people or 21% of the U.S. population. Uh, and nearly 17 million of these um, have a substantial reduction in their daily activities, and thus it is termed high-impact chronic pain. This is more likely to be seen in non-Hispanics, I guess that means Caucasians, American Indians, Alaska, and Native adults, um, adults who are divorced and separated, those who identify as bisexual, and also the LGBTQ um, community. So what do they do? They've actually gone ahead and in their communication said that they're changing the product label for all opioids and updating them, basically saying that acute pain requires no more than a few days of opioid um, uh, drugs and that you know, it needs to be tailored to the underlying cause of the pain and individual patient factors. They also say that pain medicines after surgery, opioids after surgery, um, often results in unused tablets. And that ends up becoming a risk for others within the home for accidental uh, misuse, abuse, addiction, and overdose, especially amongst children and teenagers. They also say that long-acting or extended uh, release Opioids have unique risks and are associated with more um, uh, problems with addiction and misuse. They highlight a, what I thought was a fairly new phenomenon. I know it's out there, but I was not aware of it. Opioid-induced hyperalgesia. This is where the use of opioids actually results in an increase in pain, hyperalgesia, or an increase in sensitivity to pain, allodynia. Um, so you give the opioid and they end up with more pain and you end up giving more opioid at higher doses over longer terms. And this leads to problems. The advice, of course, is to not use more or longer opioids, but to find alternative solutions for pain management. This week, there was an interesting report uh, that compared 147 RAILD patients to 400 plus non-ILD patients and showed that those with RAILD tended to be older, 66 years versus 58 years, more likely to be male, almost 36% versus 15%. And the factors associated with having RAILD in this cohort study was a higher age at um, RA onset, onset, higher BMIs, smoking, and steroid use. Well, this was timely because this week at UT Southwestern, the visiting professor was none other than Dr. Jeffrey Sparks, um, at Jeff Sparks on Twitter. He had a fabulous lecture and he sort of affirmed this data with, with his analyses showing that predictors of RAILD include smoking, disease activities, a big predictor, steroid use, obesity, and also what he published on the MUC5 promoter gene variant that increases the risk almost threefold or more. That disease activity significantly increases the risk of ILD. For every one point increase in DASH 28, he noted a 35% increase in the risk for RAILD. Overall, the risk of RAILD is about 15%, or one in six RA patients, according to good population-based data from Olmsted County and the Mayo Clinic. RAILD tends to not only lead to poor outcomes, but even worse outcomes if the person is seropositive. 
And lastly, I can't end without talking about this subject with his endorsement of the issue that methotrexate pneumonitis has nothing to do with RAILD and hence methotrexate does not increase the odds of developing RAILD. There may be other reasons why you don't want to use methotrexate in such patients, but it's not because it worsens it or causes the problem. Lastly, there's a, a really interesting report from the Swedish Artist Registry about um, RA patients taking biologics and targeted synthetics. The bottom line on this is that there's a high risk of serious um, adverse events. I know we often talk about you know patients on biologics or targeted synthetics, and we show that the risks are not that great if you compare it to other RA patients just taking conventional DMARDs. But what if you actually compare the rates of things you're worried about, like cardiac events or infectious events, to the general population? Well, this is an 11-year study that included over 20,000 RA patients that they've been following, um, and they looked at a lot of different safety outcomes, including treatment discontinuations, which really varied quite uh, quite widely, you know, for uh, per 1,000 patient years, 18 on rituximab, 57 on tofacitinib, compared to a reference rate of 30 um, discontinuous per 1,000 patient years on Enbrel or etanercept. The discontinuation rate was uh, higher with abatacept, infliximab, golimumab, and sertilizumab, but lower on tocilizumab, rituximab, and baricitinib. Again, these are kind of uh, I wouldn't say they're shocking data. What was comforting was that when you look um, beyond drug discontinuation, there were really no major differences between the drugs in serious adverse events, the things that you would worry about. But when you looked at those serious adverse events compared to the general population, again, we're talking about RA patients on biologics or targeted synthetics, the RA population did have significantly higher rates of major adverse Car, uh, cardiac events, ACS, acute coronary syndromes, strokes, serious infections, herpes zoster, liver disease, and suicide. If you look at the forest plot on this, it's a little surprising. You know, serious infection, it's a 2.68 hazard ratio compared to general population. Zoster, not surprising. 3.65 was high. TB, not surprising since most of the first-line therapy here is TNF inhibitors. It's a three-fold increased risk. But there were a significant increased risk for liver disease, a 40% increased risk. Um, almost an 11% increased risk for depression, a 38% increased risk for suicide, and any hospitalization, almost a two-fold increased risk with a hazard ratio of 1.83. These data, I think, are sobering, um, especially if you look at all-cause mortality, where there's a 31% increased risk if you compare RA patients on targeted synthetics or biologics when compared to age and sex-matched general population non-RA patients. This is a sobering, and I think that the, should give you pause um, when you're describing the safety risks associated with these drugs. Anyway, hope you enjoyed this podcast, and be sure to look at our content on women in rheumatology this week and next. I think you're going to enjoy it. Take care.